Miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. We'll talk about an important case before the country's top court, and it involves a legal defense ban back in 1995. And the country's top court is now being asked to decide if the zombie defense is a charter right, that offenders should be able to argue that they were too intoxicated to know not to commit a crime. One of these very consequential rulings, especially when it comes to violent or sex crime. So we'll talk about that. Canadians do not want to do more business with China. Our allies are telling Canada to get tough with China. So why is Canada's ambassador to China telling us that now is the time to do more business with China? And we will talk to a Hamilton woman who has now become known as the Butterfly Queen and whose goal is to save the monarch butterfly from extinction. We'll talk about why it's so special to her. Take a listen. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. How about that, guys? How about that, guys? That was unlike anything they described. All right, we, we, got, <laughs> we got less than a thousand feet. All right. Anyone know the carbon footprint of billionaire Bezos' penis shaped rocket? Anyone care? Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, October 13th. And there's a lot going on today. I hope you've had a good kind of day. Way up in orbit, there was lots going on, and of course here in the real world. And uh, like you, I too watched William Shatner blast off, becoming the oldest person to go to space on what was uh, only a 10-minute trip that clearly only the world's elite can afford. But if you've got a, a few million... Hanging around, you too can go to outer space because that is the new playground. And I'll admit I was very impressed, uh, impressed by the landing of the, I don't even know what else you call it, the shaft part of uh, Bezos' blue orbit. I was impressed at the precision in which it lands. It's very, very precise. And um, William Shatner got off that thing and uh, he was very blown away by the experience. The covering of blue, this this sheet, this blanket, this com- this comforter of blue that we have around, we think, oh, that's blue sky, and then suddenly you shoot through it all of a sudden, as so though you whip off a sheet off you when you're asleep, and you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness, and you look down, and there's the blue down there, and the black up there, and it's it's just there is mother and earth and comfort and there's is there death i don't know is that death is that the way death is and it's gone look i'm not sure what he was blathering on about um he was obviously very excited maybe putting on a little bit of an act but uh captain kirk has now gone where only the rich and famous can go and i'm not i mean we've heard all the excitement so i'm just gonna poop on this space parade Because it wasn't too long ago that Mr. Shatner was warning that the future is filled with dread, thanks to climate change, that humankind was headed for extinction. And yet uh, there he was inside that carbon-fueled space toy with not a concern about the carbon footprint his own mission would create. You ever notice how those with the most means end up making the biggest stink about climate change and then create the biggest mess? I mean, the way I look at it, you can't cry climate change and then turn around and create a brand new industry that will add to the so-called crisis. But a couple of things stuck out to me uh, watching this latest rocket launch is how big is the carbon footprint of space tourism? 
And despite all the claims that this brave new world is clean and green, oh no, no, it's not. Each rocket launched is between four to ten times more pollution than what's released at uh, the UK's largest power plant. And emissions for one rocket with four tourists, like the one that Mr. Shatner was on today, produces up to 100 times more emissions of a jumbo jet. That is a big carbon footprint. And Virgin Galactic's uh, Richard Branson's space company plans to launch 400 of these rockets a year. But Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have yet to say how many space tours they'll launch, but they are competing, all of these billionaires, to own this market. So I would assume it will likely be the same, if not more. So you look at the numbers, that's about 1,200 space flights a year, and you do the math as to how much carbon is being spewed onto Mother Earth. The bottom line is this giant leap for billionaires to play in space is very, very dirty, and it should be downright offensive to the climate crowd, and yet it's met with a shrug because, oh my God, space travel's cool. And like William Shatner, both Musk and Bezos claim to be climate change fighters. Back in March of uh, this year, Mr. Bezos announced a $10 billion Bezos, Bezos Earth Fund. He calls it climate philanthropy which is needed to address the biggest threat of our life. Musk announced $100 million for carbon removal. And so while today's was, I guess, Jeff Bezos' turn to show off, I started wondering, like, why are Canadians still paying so much to Elon Musk's bottom line? If he can take this leap into space, why are we going to foot the bill for all his green tech? Like, why is this still a thing? And in just the last two years... Musk's Tesla Motors Canada, which doesn't even make the cars here, got $125 billion in federal subsidies, subsidies from the Trudeau government. And Blacklock's reporter reveals that Musk's California-based manufacturer was the biggest beneficiary of $5,000 federal rebates for anyone who could afford one of their $55,000 basic electric cars. But the Trudeau government also gave the U.S.-based company another $5.9 million to build charging stations in BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And then you find out how much do we get for that? Not much, a measly 156 charging stations because each of them costs $38,000. I mean, we are in this country, the taxpayers, Musk's biggest investor. Everyday Canadians who can either travel to space or dare even drive a, a Ford to drive a Tesla. And yet we're paying for Musk to play in space. And if you ask me, is it worth the investment? No. Why should we still be paying for Musk's environmentally friendly car so he can then turn around and pollute the planet with his pricey spaceship? And Musk uh, is a staunch defender of carbon taxes. And he recently told Joe Rogan, quote, The economy works great. Prices and money are just information. If the price is wrong, the economy doesn't do the right thing. In other words, he said, if we don't hit people in the pocketbook, they won't stop polluting. So I, I naturally assume that Elon Musk is paying huge carbon credits to offset his space tourism, correct? Look, I have no issue with space travel. I get all the excitement. But we should have an issue with the hypocrisy of those taking this giant leap. I mean, if Elon Musk can afford space tourism, then he can foot his own bill for his own overpriced electric cars. And if the free market wants them, they will sell. 
But let us not pretend that these billionaires are fighting climate change when they actually have the biggest carbon footprint on the planet. Because right now they are all racing to be the kingmaker of a new industry that is going to compound this so-called crisis. While we plebes here on planet Earth just keep paying higher prices and higher taxes to reverse the damage they are contributing and causing. Up until 1995, those who drank or did drugs to excess could use this zombie defense, which meant you were in an extreme intoxication and didn't know what you were doing and therefore could not be held responsible for a crime. And then this defense was banned. But now the Supreme Court is being asked to decide whether the ban on that defense is unconstitutional. And the reason this has come up is because of a couple of cases, including that of a young man who was high on shrooms and then ran barefoot through the snow to his father's Peterborough home, took a butcher knife and stabbed him to death, believing he was the devil, and then attacked and blinded his mother. And Thomas Chan was convicted in 2015, but last year the Court of Appeal ordered that he get a new trial, saying his charter rights were violated because he was convicted for acting involuntary. Let me bring in Mr. Lauren Honigman, who is our global news radio legal expert. And, um, Lauren, this could uh, be a solution in, in search of a lot of problems. Um, the bottom line is both of these cases that were cited for the uh, Supreme Court yeah. are cases that involve violent acts of people who were intoxicated. And so, hey, we want to bring this defense back. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting and obviously a very important case. And and you were you were talking about it. You called it the uh, uh, the the zombie defense. But just just as a reminder, this this all came about this section of the criminal code, which is section thirty one point one. Um, and it says an accused cannot claim a defense by reason of self-induced intoxication. And this all came out of a case by uh, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Davio, went to trial on sexual assault back then, and the, and the, the judge concluded he had committed the offense, but acquitted him because he had reasonable doubt over whether the intoxicated Davio possessed, you know, that minimal intent that we talk about necessary to commit the offense. And there was an outrage back then. And this was Parliament's way of addressing that. So now, as you put out, this case is now wound, these two cases have wound their way through the courts. And the Supreme Court of Canada is now going to have to decide the issue because, interestingly, Alex, the Ontario Court of Appeal because uh, both mm. of these cases were Ontario, the Ontario Court of Appeals said um, it was unconstitutional. And, and when you look at it, you go, well, how can it be? Well, well, what's the problem with it? And just to drill down so, so people can understand this and cut through, cut through a lot of the legalese, yeah, the, the problem with it is, is, is basically you say, how can, or the argument would be, the argument was, and accepted by the court, that wait a minute, if if you didn't have the intent, in other words, if you may have had the intent to put the drugs in your mouth and swallow them or take too much, you know, medicine or or whatever it is, whether alcohol, for example, you may have that intent, but but that then caused you to lose the ability to form the intent to commit the bad act in in this case the the murders so how can you how can you say well you voluntarily intoxicated yourself therefore you voluntarily then committed a bad act you understand the complication there 
And believe me, it's complicated. And the court was hearing argument all day yesterday. Uh, yours truly had it on in the background uh, because it is fascinating. And and both sides of this issue, the arguments, you, you can just understand it. Like the Crown is getting up there and saying, no, we need this law in place. We can't, we can't allow people just to go out and do things and then say, oh, I was just too intoxicated. I didn't know what I was doing. That's why Parliament put that in there. And yet the people well, exactly. arguing, yeah, the people arguing well, on the other side are saying, no, no, but wait a minute. Intentional violence and inadvertent violence are not the same thing. You, you can't say it's the same thing that, that you know, somebody... Uh, somebody intentionally has has stabbed somebody to death is the same thing as in, in inadvertently stabbing them to death just because they were so intoxicated. So right, it yeah, but it's in, but you look here, here's the thing. Uh, the bottom line is, I mean, it's not a constitutional right to go out and get drunk or severely intoxicated on drinking or drugs. My concern, right. and I think most people's concern, would be that this is a Pandora's box of problem because. I'm sure a lot of people would come and say, well, I didn't mean to have 20 beers and then get in my car and kill, you know, a family of five. But, you know, right. here, uh, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing because, you know, that's what will happen or, or in sexual assault cases or, you know, you could use this defense in almost everything. Sure. And, and you know, you can't use it, by the way. It, the interesting part of it is in, in the context of impaired driving, um, you know, people had tried to say before, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I may have, you know, intended to sit in a bar um, and, uh, and, and, and drink those 10 beers, but I never intended to kill anybody when I went, when I drove. But there's one, one act taking place there in between everything, and that's getting mm -hmm. into the car. And that's what right. that's the difference. Right. That's that's because you can't the driver who kills somebody while they're impaired can't say, oh, I didn't intend to kill anybody. Uh, I intended to drink. But you got into the car and the minute you got in the car, the minute you turned that car on, you that was it. So this is different here. But but you're right. The 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 Pandora's box, that that argument. And that's why a lot of the interveners who were in court yesterday in the Supreme Court, like, for example, the Women's Legal and Education Action Fund, LEAF, um, they echoed a lot of the arguments today, you know, uh, yesterday about that and about that. What's going to happen um, if, if this law is, is struck down? Because a lot of people argue, Alex, that yeah. it deters people from um, extreme intoxication. So that basically it is a good deterrent out there to say to people, look, you know, you're going to go out and you're going to voluntarily start taking, you know, mushrooms to the point that that you're going to be so intoxicated. If you end up doing something, you know, you could be held criminally liable for that, notwithstanding you may have not had, uh, uh, you know, your mind may have been so intoxicated at that time. So. Uh, that, there was a lot of arguments about that as well. But, you know, when you look at the facts of some of the, of the cases, like, for example, one of the cases is, is this, the man Sullivan, yeah. he actually was doing the drugs. He was going to commit suicide. I mean, that yeah. was his motive. And he ended up killing somebody instead. I think it was his mother. Um, tragedy. Uh, but right. Yeah, but, but, but then argued at the end of it saying, well, I, I didn't know what I was doing.
I got like 30 seconds. I want to ask you then, if this, in fact, is, um, you know, it goes the way of uh, putting this law back in place, what does that mean for historical cases that could have used this defense? Are all of those cases overturned? Sorry, if they if they strike down the law? Well, if they strike down the law and say it can be used, I mean, if you were convicted 15 years ago... Um, right. No, no, no. I, no, that's, we're, we're not going to see that. The door won't be opening up to, the, to, to all the people then saying, um, oh, well, wait a minute, I was convicted way back when. Right. Um, no. Okay. But, but it's, it's going to be very important, on, most certainly on a go-forward basis. All right, you will stay tuned because it is a very big decision that will come yes. down and it will certainly be an interesting one to watch, and that's why we're bringing it up. Lauren, appreciate the time. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. That is Mr. Lorne Honigman joining us here, so we'll keep an eye on that one. So since the release of the Michaels, our allies have been warning the Trudeau government that it is time to get tough with China or uh, get out of our way. And it's clear from numerous polls done over the last three years that a huge majority of this country no longer trusts China. The latest uh, polling revealing that only one in 10 Canadians want to continue doing business as usual to China. So I found it a little bizarre to hear that Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, wants Canada to move the opposite direction, that now is the time to do more business with China and not less. And Barton, just so you kind of know who he is, he was involved with the release of the Michaels. He was there on the tarmac with them and flew on the plane with them. And he knows full well of the threat China presents not just to this country, but to the people of this country. And yet he is making no secret that now we need to be doing business with China and taking advantage of the economic opportunities. I want to bring Professor Scott Simon into this conversation, senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, also a professor of social sciences at the University of Ottawa. Good to have you, Professor. Yeah, thank you for having me today. So on one side, our allies are saying take a tougher stance. On the other side, you got uh, Canadians say take a tougher stance. Um, the U.S., U.K., and Australia, our five I, you know, partners, have bolstered mm-hmm. their approach to China. And we seem to be um, going the opposite direction. What do you make of the ambassador's uh, comments? Well, you know, I read the same article that you did, and I think he was basically going his job as ambassador of Canada to China um, but, you know, he's gives the impression there that the two Michaels have come back. And so we can just go back to business as usual. And mm-hmm. I think there are lots of good reasons for Canadians to be concerned about that. And I, I think that the most obvious and immediate one is that there are still other Canadian citizens being detained in, in China. And I, I'm thinking, you know, about in particular, there's one a Uyghur uh, a dual citizen of Hussein Sashil, who's been there for quite a long time. And it's because China doesn't recognize his Canadian citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so there are ongoing cases. I think that it's rather quick to say we can go back to business as usual. And that's, that's just the first thing. And so, you know, there are other issues going on that you know we should be very concerned about what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Uh, which our own parliament has made a motion saying that there's a genocide going on. Albeit, I I I mean, the the Trudeau government had a... Yeah, I would just point out that the Trudeau government did not vote with the opposition members on that and still have not said there's a genocide. So even then, the Trudeau government seems to have a problem uh, doing Mm -hmm. that. And maybe maybe you can say, all right, well, uh, the Michaels were still incarcerated, but it is not 
in keeping with, um, you know, how Canada should guide its moral compass. And, and so when mm -hmm. I see Mr. Barton saying, you know, we need our companies to engage in support of our economic interest mm -hmm. while being true to our values, which is what he mm -hmm. said. I mean, mm -hmm. how, Professor, do we do business with a country that has made no secret of its threat to us in the present and has no value when it comes to human yeah, rights? It's clear that our, our values are in conflict with China. And the thing is that Canada has two tendencies. One of them is we like to be proud of our internationalism, of our values of democracy, human rights, and promoting those around the world. Another one is that we, Canada tends to be, and we should be honest about this, really a natural resources provider, willing to sell to the highest bidder, whatever we can from our forests, our oil, and everything. And so there's that other dark side of Canada that's happened by taking resources on land that belongs to indigenous peoples and selling those resources around the world to anybody. And so there's a, right. there is that dark side. Sure there is. And our exports yeah. to China, to your point, increased last year by 8% to $25 mm -hmm. billion. And so that yeah. was a huge boost in sales as our, our second, um, you know, mm -hmm. second largest trading partner group. But yeah. given given that China is now being questioned on its role, if anything, with this virus, given the Uyghur Muslims, given the treatment of the two Michaels and hostage diplomacy, given the threat it is to our national security, uh -huh. and given what you see in the polling, I mean, Canadians now kind of no longer want China as a partner, no matter what it means to our economic well-being. It's yeah. more of a national security um, yeah. concern for Canadians, and it's more of a uh, alignment with our, our human rights values. And, yeah. and you know, 70% yeah. of Canadians, pull, they don't want Huawei. And so if this yeah. government says yes to that, then clearly Canadians and the Trudeau government are, are on two different pages. Yeah. If the Trudeau government says yes to Huawei, mm -hmm. then they're going to have big troubles with our neighbors to the south. And I think that they better realize that. And, you know, the United States also has uh, a, a bill that's going through the Senate right now, which basically says that the United States has to do an annual report on Canada-China relations, and that mm -hmm. they have to be on the same page with a very large list of things, including Huawei and Xinjiang and Taiwan. And so I think that we really don't have much choice if we want to have a relationship with the country with which we do some 80% of our trade. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're long past time that we can diversify our trade. I know that the Trudeau, or specifically Justin Trudeau, kind of wanted to carry on the legacy of his father. He wanted to go big on China. Uh -huh. That was part of his platform when he ran for leadership. Yeah. And he's made no secret that he really wanted to have a very close relationship yeah. um, with, yeah, with China. He was very clear about that. And he's been very clear about that all along. When he spoke with, with, with Xi Jinping, he said, I want to help you take your place on the global stage. And yeah. I'm not I think that Really, you know, we, it's, it's, it's time that we step back from China. I'm not saying not have relations with China, but to have relations with China in multilateral settings, members of the WTO, members of the United Nations, and then really decide which countries we want to hold close to us as our friends and allies. Obviously, the United States is the first one on the list there, but I think Japan is equally as important. I think the EU is important. We already have a trade agreement with the United States and Mexico. We've got the mm -hmm. CPTPP. We've got Taiwan. So, you know, and there's India. You know, if we, if we want to have trade with a country that can provide us with merchandise at a low cost, 
We don't have to source to China. We can source to Mexico. We can source to India. There are lots of other opportunities for us in the world. And we're a small country. We can't take every opportunity that's there. Right. But they are, there are, to your point, opportunities, and they are not being explored. And mm-hmm. meanwhile, on Taiwan, you know, Taiwan, um, you know, little Taiwan, which is a peanut compared to the size of China, is mm-hmm. is not bowing to China. They are saying that yeah. we will not bow to a, a, an ever-growing, mm-hmm. um, aggressive China, which has made mm-hmm. no secret that it wants Taiwan back in its fold. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got allies over there. I think Canada's got one tiny little submarine floating around out there in the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. but we are not part of this pact with uh, Australia, mm-hmm. the UK, mm-hmm. and the United mm-hmm. States. And I don't know if this government will um, you know, fight to join that, but mm-hmm. you know, we let Hong Kong fall and we looked mm-hmm. away. And, and I fear that Canada will look away again for a, mm-hmm. at a time when it really should be standing with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I would, I, I really hope that we can move our military, we can increase our military budget, and I hope that we can work. I think that that you know maybe we can't join the Quad right away. Maybe they don't want us. But I bet we could work with Japan more and have interoperability with our naval force or with our with our militaries. And I bet we but can. Certain- you know, we I think there are limits to what we can do with Taiwan, but we can follow in the footsteps of what other countries are doing. Uh, and of course, that's the U.S. and Japan and the Quad. But even. Um- saying we stand with Taiwan would be a lot more than this government did with Hong Kong and would certainly yeah. signal a change in attitude to China, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, and there is a big difference between Taiwan and Hong Kong because Hong mm-hmm. Kong was turned over to China in an agreement with Great Britain, which had it as a colony. Well, Taiwan's a colony of nobody. It's an independent, sovereign country. So there's nobody who's going to negotiate an agreement. And so basically, if there was any conflict or aggression towards Taiwan, it would be a serious international issue, and it it could start a war. So I think that we have to be trying to do our best to deter that from happening, and that's not going to happen by showing signs of weakness. Given what you read of the ambassador's comments, do you get the sense that this government is going to change its approach with China? From what I read in the newspaper, I don't think anything is going to change in this government's approach to China. I think the best thing we can hope for is that the opposition parties will restart the, the China Commission in Parliament, the one that mm-hmm. issued the, the the issue about the brought up the issue of genocide in Xinjiang and brought it to a vote. Mm-hmm. I hope that we have that commission and is very active and it holds their, the liberals' feet to the fire on that. And Let I hope, hope that there are liberals like Judy Skro, who is head of the Taiwan-China Interparliamentary Friendship Association, are also speak out on these issues. Yeah, certainly it would uh, be nice to see um, some, you know, uh, motion on this in the right direction. But uh, I yeah. tend to agree with you, was, Professor. Yeah. I very, I very much appreciate your time, and I have to uh, let you go on that. But I appreciate okay. your insight. Yep. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. That is Professor Scott Simon uh, joining us out of uh, the University of Ottawa. So we'll see if there's any change in approach with China. But I have a feeling if they say yes to Huawei, Canadians will just go nuts. Maybe late in the season, but um, the last of many monarch butterflies are now starting the 3,000-mile journey to Mexico or California where they'll winter in the warmth before taking a journey back. And I did not know this, but uh, the monarch butterfly is now heading to extinction, thanks in part to the wildfires we saw in BC and California. 
Which brings us to a woman who lives in Hamilton and who is trying her best to help save this species because it made a special mark on her when she saw one land on the doorknob of her sister's palliative care room. And now Barbara Fanson has become known as the Butterfly Queen, where she raises hundreds of monarchs. And now for the first time, she can actually start tracking their journey thanks to some special stickers that attach to the species' wings, where she can hopefully track their migration to find out what is happening to these winged beauties along their journey. Barbara Fanson is an author, graphic designer, retired professor, and the Butterfly Queen. She joins us now. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. I love well, to this talk year, about butterflies. Not just well, monarchs. I gather that. Not just monarchs, but also painted ladies and black, uh, eastern black swallowtails and other moths. Well, I, I've got to be honest. Uh, my son loves butterflies. We've gone to the conservatory a couple of times. He forced me to um, plant a butterfly bush. So every year we get these beautiful butterflies, which I can't even identify, but um, <laughs> they are a beautiful visitor. I, I did not know, though, that uh, the monarch was extinct. And here you are just this year alone. You've raised 123 right from uh, baby Tagged 123. I've probably raised 200. Well, okay. some are wild and some are raised. Uh, but from mid-August onward, then I started tagging. So from that point, I've tagged 123. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit. Let me go back a little bit. because four generations of monarch butterflies. The butterfly that is leaving now and on this side of the Rockies is heading towards Mexico. That butterfly will not be returning in the spring. Instead, at the end of February, beginning of March, when the warmer temperatures come and they can smell nectar, they come down out of the trees and they start to head back towards Texas and Oklahoma, they will mate and then they'll lay eggs. Uh, unfortunately, then they expire. Those eggs will become caterpillars, a chrysalis or pupa, and then an adult butterfly will continue the journey. But they only live about six weeks as well, and then their eggs will grow up. So on June 22nd, I saw a female monarch lay an egg here in Hamilton. So June 22nd, that was probably a second-generation monarch. And then in July, I was raising those babies, those monarchs. And then those monarchs laid more eggs. So it's the fourth generation that will actually migrate from here to Mexico. It's a, it's a very long journey. I mean, uh, and it's inter, you know, interesting reading in what you do. So you tagged 123 monarchs this year. One in 100 generally survives. So when you let them go, it's not like you expect them to come back to you. But tell me a little bit about this technology, this sticker that you're able to put on their hind wing that allows and will allow you and others to track their movements and gain data. Well, first, I purchased the stickers from monarchwatch.org. And uh, once I put a sticker on the hind wing of a butterfly, it doesn't hurt the butterfly. And it's a very special, lightweight sticker with a special adhesive that it won't hurt them or, or um, get in the way of flying. And then I record whether it's a male or female. Did I raise it or was it wild? And 
the date and the place that I um, released it. And in Ontario, I'm only supposed to release it within 50 kilometers because there are many times when I've wanted to just drive to Windsor or somewhere and let them out. But according to my permit, it's supposed to be within 50 kilometers because if you have you diseases go. here, you don't want them spread to Windsor or other places. Oh, well, you raise a good point. I thought just uh, I thought you were just very uh, law and orderly, but yes, you raise a good point that you don't but want to I would love contaminate. To just drive to the Mexico Mexico and drop them off to make sure they make it, my babies. <laughs> and so, what what do you hope to get out of of this uh, data, and how will this help? Um, you know. Bring them back. I didn't realize, and I don't think a lot of people realize that the monarch, which is probably the most common butterfly we see uh, to most people, um, you know, if they're not around anymore, how can this data help? Uh, two things. Um, in April, Monarch Watch, Monarch Watch will release the information. They have people in Mexico who will watch the butterflies as they come down out of the trees. So the end of February, beginning of March. They start recording and photographing all these tags. And so they will upload this list and then all of us can look at it on their website. Secondly, they have another report showing sightings. So if I happen to be in a park and I see a tagged butterfly, I could take a picture or try and write down the number. Most people have a camera on their cell phone. So if they can take a picture of the tag, and then report it. And on the tag, it does say mwtag.org. And there's a number. Each butterfly has its own number. So if you said, I saw this number in Sam Lawrence Park in Hamilton, and you upload that to Monarch Watch, then I will find out next March. And then you will find out when and where it was released. So you'll know that your Monarch was released two days ago, or two months ago, uh, the monarch you you saw, and then I will find out whether it was found dead in Dunville, or whether it made it to Point Pelee National Park, or whether it made it to a cemetery in Oklahoma, or it was spotted in Mexico. So it'd be really interesting to find out how far it go it will go. Well, yeah, and I think it'd be interesting. I mean, how new is this technology? Is this something that's new? I mean, because I think it would be very neat um, if you just spotted one, let's say, on the butterfly bush and thought, oh, I've got a sticker, then you can be part of the process. It was around 1976, but it did take several years. Dr. Fred Urquhart from, uh, was a university at, in Toronto, and he um, tried tagging these butterflies, and sometimes the tag fell off. He tried tagging their leg. He tried several things. Because Canadians were wondering, well, where do our butterflies go? In the meantime, the natives of Mexico saw butterflies arrive, and they knew it was time to harvest the corn. And then up in the mountains, some of the natives had a tradition that a monarch, they thought a monarch represented a deceased loved one, and that Mm. they were coming back to celebrate Day of the Dead, which is the day after uh, Halloween, November 1st and 2nd. They put out pictures of their deceased relatives because some of them believe that monarchs represent their deceased loved ones. 
And so they and hence the special connection have, that you have with with one seeing one as your sister is in her, uh, you know, final hours. Maybe that's just a sign um, of a we, transformation. I have to think that, uh, I, yeah, I, and I have to think that it would be quite staggering, or just maybe um, your life's work if one of them actually made it back to you. Uh, I, I would love to hear that. You know, even if it was found dead, I would know, you know, how far it made it. And um, and which way it went from Hamilton, I believe that most of them would fly southwesterly along the shore of the northern shore of Lake Erie. And then they either go down into Point Pelee or they continue their journey on to Amherstburg, uh, south of Windsor and cross Lake St. Clair. Um, well, they, they I, I've got to be lots of reportings, uh, even butterflies released at the Toronto Zoo. They tend to uh, they've been found at Long Point. Uh, well, that that's National very cool. Park. I'm going to run up against I'm going to run up against the clock. I wish I had more time. I think it's a fabulous, um, certainly a, lo- a passion for you, a love affair for you and uh, good work in all. But I'll be keeping my eye out to see if I see the stickers. Uh, but thank you so <laughs> much, Barbara, for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Her name is Barbara Fanson, otherwise known as the Butterfly Queen. She's written about this. She's obviously dedicated a lot of her life to this delicate but very hardy little critter, and no question about it. It's very cool. If you want more information on Monarch Watch, watch um, you can actually go to the website, M-W, capital T-M, capital W, capital U-T, ag.org so mwtag.org thank you for listening of course you can join us live monday through friday starting 6 30 sharp i'm alex pearson on point and this is global news radio